you not be stressed out in a world that's careening, going straight, headlong into disaster with all the grace of a pig on stilts? Is it possible to bid you welcome to a program, today's program, that unflinchingly rips the mask from the face of the monster revolutionism so that you may see the exposed hideous truth beneath? And that's only the beginning. Once you know what to look for, once you know what to see, once you recognize the sounds and smell the odor of it, you're going to see the handiwork of these demons of revolutionism all around you. You're going to see their shadowy form zip across the moon at night. Uh, it's not E.T. you'll be seeing, but something different altogether. Today's program is intense. And all of this is to say that I really can't bid you welcome, but like the child in the attic in that B-horror movie that we've all seen, I definitely can say I'm glad you're here. You have made it to episode 7 of Unmasking the Revolution. Monsieur is once again with us, and we are very grateful to have him as we get into never-before-heard-in-English analysis of the French Revolution. And the title of episode seven, lady or gentleman, is The Aesthetics of Hate. I'm going to explain this title in just a bit, presently, as they say, but I want to talk about who I represent first. That is the Fleur de Lis Club. We are they making this little podcast for good happen. You may visit our website. And in fact, I encourage you to do so at www.fleurdelis-club.org. That's www.fleurdelis-club.org. But there's something that you must not do, lady or gentleman. You must not make the mistake of thinking that the revolutionaries consciously know that they are the wanton handmaids of hell. My friend, in their mind, they actually believe their sickness, wickedness, their, if I may use the term, perfidity. These are good things for the world. It helps the world. It's good. They're making it better all the time, in their minds. The scale of their madness... Let me give you an example. You can measure their madness by looking at this inversion of Christ's gospel and inversion according to their own twisted minds. So first we have it from the gospel according to St. Luke, the sublime words of Christ um, teaching us about the road to happiness through love and charity. Um, so, and I say to you, ask and it shall be given you. See? 
and you shall find, knock, and it shall be opened to you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. And which of you, if he ask his father bread, will he give him a stone? Or a fish? Will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask for an egg, will he reach him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father from heaven give the good spirit to them that ask him? So that is the sublime wisdom of Christ. And next we have how the revolutionary interprets it, these sublime truths. For the revolutionary, demand and you will take it. Don't seek. There's nothing to find. Kick in the door and take whatever you need. Rob the family, too. No such thing as right and wrong anyway. No one gets something by asking. Don't look for anything. And violence gets you stuff, too. It's neat to turn bourgeois morality around. Give hungry kids drugs and obese children even more of that sweet, sweet food. As some people like to mix it up, by giving their children deadly snakes instead of food, well, none of your cultural imperialist business, you evil monster. Let them give snakes to their children. What are you, some kind of sicko? And lastly, there's no such thing as good and evil. That's just a bunch of patriarchal propaganda. That's their mind. And actually, I can hear them now. <laughs> I want to mourn the loss of all the old growth trees I've seen and tell them that we love them and that we don't want them to die, that there are some people here who do care. So I want you to know that, trees. That we care. I've looked at clear cuts and burnt forest, and I've felt outraged, but I didn't scream and I didn't cry. And I need to. And that's enough of those psychos for a while, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that is until they're camped outside your house, um, seeking your blood to water their trees. Um, you think I'm insane? No, that's the tip of the old chapeau to Monsieur. Uh, earlier in the series, we had a discussion on Druidic paganism, human sacrifice, and how the, the Franks were able to Christianize that barbaric land and extirpate those sinful and evil devilish religions from the face of the earth. Um, but this coming back, there are Jewish friends out there in the woods with their Druidic ceremonies and their Druidic sacrifices. They're just lurking in the forest, goblin-like, waiting to come storming into our reality. But not just yet. Not just yet. Well, I seem to have digressed. The point is that we are really getting underneath the mask of the French Revolution. And what we see actually is pretty horrible. What we see is that there has been festering psychological illnesses 
there has been uh, flirtations with the diabolical, there have been defeats, there's been self-hatred, and all of this is combined with a good amount of money and a network of, of very wicked men to create, to create the French Revolution, which we're exploring. And this all took place under the management, if not the, the planning. We don't know who the handler was of the Duke of Orléans. I wonder, sir, if you, if you had to bet, if, if you were a betting man, Every agent provocateur, and the Duke of Orléans was certainly an agent provocateur, they have a handler that manages them. Absolutely. Who, do you, who would you say? Because, you know, I, oh, I do want to mention very briefly, in England during this time, there was the phenomenon of hellfire clubs. Ladies and gentlemen in the audience, I'm not joking. I'm not making up a word. Hellfire clubs, look into it. They were torch-lit torch midnight meetings of debauched, revolutionaries where they would discuss all manner of wicked things and of course one of their leading members was ben franklin so who was managing this spider do you think sir well <clears throat> very difficult to answer we cannot give a definite answer to mm. that but we can certainly point to the freemasons yes and more than the freemasons um the illuminati um, yes because <clears throat> don't forget that about 20 years before the revolution <coughs> Sorry, or let's say it may not be twenty years. Well, something like that. There was a convent in um, in Prussia or in Bavaria, I believe. Bavaria, Bavaria. Yeah, absolutely. I was looking for that word actually. Yeah. And where they had already designed more or less what would happen later during the French Revolution, and it so happened that uh, the main uh, orchestrator of that um, particular devil, evilish or plot was Weishaupt, you know, the main... Yes, uh, Adam Weishaupt, and it was devilish, yeah. not devilish, like it was devilish. Well, do you know that it was a defrocked je Jesuit? And he was also apparently <coughs> a Jewish uh, guy. I yes, there was, he was defrocked, he was, he was a wicked man, a very wicked man. No, he was diabolical. But anyway, he was, he was one of the mastermind behind the French Revolution. I'm not saying he's the only one, but I definitely played a very important role. And that brings us back to Mira, Mirabeau. <coughs> because Mirabeau uh, was a Rosicrucian. You know the Rosicrucians? I do. I, well, would you explain very briefly what they are? Just I wouldn't be able to give you too many details on it because I would have uh, to... I know this is a, is it, it's a sect, obviously, but they have a very... They have slightly different beliefs from the uh, uh, run-of-the-mill uh, Freemasons. It's you know, I just realized, sir, we've come full circle because we discussed in a few podcasts ago the era of King Clovis and his defense of orthodoxy against the heresies, and one of those heresies was oh, yes. Gnosticism, and and Rosicrucianism is just another form of Gnosticism, oh, uh, yes, secret knowledge revealed to people. Yeah. Excellent, and, yes, yeah. exactly. So the thing is, you see, Rosicrucians played a very important part in the French Revolution, but of course this is covert. Nobody knows about it. And Mirabeau was the one who introduced uh, the, uh, the Rosicrucian philosophy of Gnosticism to the Duke of Orleans. So you see, all things are connected here. Yes. So through Mirabeau, who was one of the le leaders uh, of the Rosicrucians in France, and the Rosicrucians would find themselves in the, in the 
le club breton, which became the, or the Breton club, which became yes. the Jacobin, the Jacobin uh, club. And by the way, to become a member of that particular society, you had to be, to be fairly rich. Because although they talk about equality, fraternity, yes. this is uh, only for the, for the populace. Because yes. if you were not a nobleman, or if you were not close to the royalty, you would, you would not be admitted. So in these clubs, you or in these secret societies, you only had the, the upper class. Indeed. Okay? And it's true of every revolutionary in history, sir. Every revolutionary from Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, Mao yes. Zedong, yes. Uh, Vladimir Lenin, they're not yes. poor people. They're rich intellectuals. And it's always the case. And as George Orwell said, sir, some animals are more equal than others. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And in that particular case, I read that the, for example, the Toulouse, uh, in Toulouse, there must have been something like 10 or 12 philosophical societies. But behind that particular label, you had the Freemasons. Now, the technique is very strange because they would appear to be extremely uh, well-meaning, uh, philanthropical, you know, yes. uh, people. But in fact, the real goals were hidden and nobody knew about them. You know, this is exactly what they did. So th they would appear to be extremely nice and congenial, but in fact, their purpose was totally different. Nice and, and congenial uh, is so the word. And cutting edge. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I may get criticized later on. But I would say that, do you know who Elon Musk is, monsieur? Uh, no, I don't. He's a he's a he's an inventor. He owns SpaceX. He he's like a new uh, tech giant. He owns uh, I think Amazon or eBay or something like that. And mm -hmm. the, he recently started opining about first principles. His interesting character, Elon Musk, is his name. His mm -hmm. SpaceX is his company. And he started opining on Aristotle's first principles, which of course we believe in being legitimists and being natural uh, believers in natural law. And I looked the other day. And there is no longer on the first two pages. I audience, look it up, Monsieur. Please be look it up if you have some time. Yes. Look up first principles. In the first two pages or three pages of search engine results, you won't even find the name Aristotle. You will find this name Elon Musk, who says nothing of substance. These are who the philosophers were popular, sophistic, and they were yes, they were the leading lights of their day, and they said nothing of substance. They said, uh, yeah. I didn't know that. Uh, I, I haven't heard about this particular character. Is he, uh, is, is he still living today, this guy? Oh, he's Most very, he, he's young. He's, oh, is he? Oh, he's young, popular. He's just like Steve Jobs in a way. Steve Jobs in oh, a way, he, he, he gave people a new god and called it Apple. And in the, oh, in the yes. I digress. But these are the philosophers. They're, they're trendy, I would say is the word for them. These salons were trendy. Au courant. Finish that quotation which I started because I think it's it brings uh, it casts some light on the true nature of the Duke of Orleans, and that from Brissot and uh, okay we've talked about Brissot he said the prince was rather fond of conspiracies that lasted twenty four hours any longer and he grew frightened, and that is absolutely true because if you remember the episode I talked about the naval episode during the war where he took refuge uh, in the cargo of the of the ship because he was afraid of all the guns and all that stuff so he was a coward covered by definition but
just uh, because we were talking about the Freemasons, I would yes. like to bring another quote here, which I think is very interesting about Marie Antoinette. Because Please. at one point, at the end, before before her unfortunate end, she wrote a letter uh, to her brother, uh, Leopold II. And this that was on the 17th of August, 1790. Uh, that's what she said. She, she's talking to her brother. Be very careful of all these Freemasons associations. It is through this channel that all the monsters uh, will come to your country with the same goals. You see? Yes. And she adds something else. She says, I should have, 11 years ago, I should have believed what I saw because it's coming to life today. And, and uh, not actually, this is what the king, Louis XVI, said as well in 1792. In other words, he had been informed uh, and warned about the Freemasons 10 years before 1792, so in 1782. But at the time, he was younger, and he didn't believe that these things could be true because he was himself such a candid young ca king, in a sense, you see? Yes. He had been informed, but he didn't believe it. You see? I must ask, so, who, who is yes. informing him? Who who was on the king's side? Because it seems he was surrounded by enemies. Was it Vergennes? Well, was it Maurepas? Vergennes, maybe Vergennes, yes, yes, absolutely. But <clears throat> shall I say one word about the um, the the agents in England for Please. for the Duke of Orleans? Because I just think about that. I have read a book uh, which I bought uh, particularly because I was interested in this particular topic by an author, she's dead now, but her name is Marion Ward. And she wrote a book about a famous English spy whose name is Nathaniel Parker Forth. Now this guy, I don't know whether you've heard of him, but he, he was a very uh, important uh, character because he was known to the king, to the queen, to, to Morpah, to very important people in France, but also he was known uh, in England at the court, and he was the special uh, special envoy. This is he, he was a spy, you see, and his yes. main interest was to defend the British crown. But the French used him as well, and he was a special envoy from uh, Morpah to England. And <laughs> this guy was the the agent. What this was Duke's the Duke's agent in England. Now, why was he his agent? Because he, he had connections. This guy had, who belo belonged to the minor aristocracy in Ireland, mm. uh, had, as he had no money because only the, elder, the, the eldest would get the, the manor or the, um, the, the estate, he had to mm. leave. And he decided to make a fortune abroad. And he, went, he came to France. And he, he built up a network of... Uh, Inf uh, of intelligence along the coast, and the the people were <coughs> were um, <coughs> observing the movements of the ships, whether they were going to America or you know to to England, and, yes. and so he got information about the movements of the ships, and then he would give the information. He was living in France, and he would provide the information to the English. So he was very important to the English, but it was also very important to the French because the French knew that he had high connections at the court. <coughs> now, it so happened that he was a broker, 
it's a, it's a li little bit like the Duke of Orleans on a small scale, the same type of uh, guy in a sense. The morals are uh, a bit better, but not all that much. He had three wives, and uh, the interesting thing here is that the first time he married, actually he didn't marry, he lived with, with a young uh, lady, in, and he got children with her, but he never married her. Now, it so happened that as he was very famous at the court, Marie Antoinette knew him. Yes. His name again is Nathaniel Parker IV. Remember that name? Yes. And uh, he, he, he used to come to the court at Versailles. He was received and he was greeted. But then, uh, for some reason, Marie Antoinette uh, was told that this guy was not married. And afterwards, she wouldn't talk to him. He would try to talk to her. She would not respond. So it shows, a char it shows the character of the queen. Yes. That, that, that lady, that queen, had high morals. I want to insist on that. She had very high morals. And you were not supposed to come to Versailles court if you were not legally uh, uh, married. And so you couldn't introduce yourself or introduce your wife if it was not a, a fully wedded wife, you know? So that, that's a very interesting uh, thing. And it is. I, I, that's, that's just one comment about the, the Marie Antoinette's real uh, high morals, because I think we have to defend her whenever we can. Absolutely. Defense, you see? Her, I would say that Marie Antoinette and King Louis XVI, aside from St. Louis, King Louis IX, I believe, they were probably yes. the most moral monarchs oh, that yeah. any country has ever had. They were, yes. now they, granted that Mary Antoinette, when she was younger, she, she played cards and she went hunting like a man, riding, you know, not so riding young. side saddles. So young. Yes, but she, just look at the, look at the end, they, look at the dignity they kept through all of these horrible tortures. Yes. They yes. never lost, they couldn't take their dignity from them. They could not. And this is why the Duke of Orleans was trying to vilify them all uh, the time, mm. because he was the exact opposite of that. Yes. He was a disgusted, disgusting, e evil character, so he couldn't stand the high morals of the king and the queen, you see? And um, this is uh, good and evil. It's just... It uh, is. It is good and evil, and and it plays a very important part in the French Revolution. I do believe this as well. So th coming back to this particular character, who was the agent of the of the Dukes of Orleans? Now he was the agent because he had very high connections, and through him, the Duke of Orleans was introduced apparently to the Prince of Wales. Now <coughs> it's interesting <coughs> because the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York were broke, they had no money. And they would borrow money from the Duke of Orleans through the intermediary who was the... Nathaniel Bedford Parker Fourth. Yeah, absolutely. So he was the guy who was uh, making the connections between the two. Now, the Duke of Orleans had banks in England and in, in Holland, you see? Yes. And, they, and also he had the same bankers as Park. Uh, as a fourth, sorry. So they shared the same banks, you see. Is this a connection to Jacques Necker? Uh, there's a well, Jacques Necker, that's another story altogether. 
Uh, Jacques Necker uh, is, a, is another banker from, from Geneva, if I'm not mistaken. He was a Protestant. Indeed. And he played a huge part in the storming of La Bastille as well. Indeed. And I've talked about he this before. He was playing against the king all the time. Exactly so. We've talked about this before, but I think it bears a very, very brief mention right now that the revolution, though, although we cannot put one finger on the heart of it other than Satan, who was the author of it, we can say that what the result of the revolution was was the eclipsing of a moral a moral order dedicated to equilibrium in society. And instead, now we live in the world, they created a world of a dictatorship of banking cartels who are leading us to war with no reason, who are destroying our culture and giving us nihilism, all for short-term profit. This is the world they created. These are the bankers, these are the rulers of the world, the masters of the universe. But you see, if there's no war, there's no profits. Indeed. And war. And if there's no profits, what, what about the banks? You know, and it's absolutely no profits. So, so and the, war is the perfect the business. The needs the, needs the, the, there will always be wars. Yes. Indeed. And you produce it's things. So profitable. It's so profitable. Indeed. See? Indeed. And a bomb can only be used to blow things up. So you need to build another bomb. It's, exactly. It's, it's, exactly. Yes. And once you have de destroyed everything, you have to reconstruct and the cycle goes on again. You see? this uh, go-between, this merchant, he was a ma wine merchant at the start, he became a broker, he was a gambler, they used to play billiards at the time, they play, and at one point, uh, this is also a very interesting episode to give you some idea about the, the Duke. The Duke had a huge collection of beautiful paintings with the most uh, famous uh, signatures you can imagine. Mm. Then, all of a sudden, they would play billiards, you know, with the Prince of Wales, the Duke of York, and, and he, would, he would gamble his own paintings, which were worth uh, a fortune, you see, and just like that, they would, they would uh, play, and if you gamble, then you can lose, and he lost, he lost, but he, he didn't care all that much, because the banks were there, and he had, uh, he was, uh, you know, he had plenty of money, but anyway, so. It was self-hate. I can't imagine a worse collection of people to be around. By the way, this is who's going to become King William the Fourth. I think it's the Regent. He was, she was so unpopular as the Regent, and then King of England. He almost single-handedly destroyed the monarchy. Uh, was he? I'm sorry. Was was it uh, the Prince of Wales? George the Fourth. Yes, I believe is. It was, it okay. Was so came. coming back to the Prince of Wales, he had, as I told you, he was always broke. Yes. And it's very interesting to see whether. I was a little bit um, disappointed by reading this with this book because I thought there would be 
uh, I was looking for clues to the real uh, about the, the, the real character of that fourth because uh, of that guy because he was a spy because I've read it in many different articles he was a spy for the English but in the book unfortunately we don't get uh, too much um, information about that because the book is based mainly on Forth's diaries and um, and the author she's it's quite interesting to read it's a good read but it doesn't go in depth about the connections we so we would have to uh, I would have to find some time to go deeper into <coughs> the uh, names that are given about all the banks and uh, but it's a, it's a research work and I have no time for that but anyway yeah. uh, this fourth uh, played a very important part what I, what I want to say is this the Prince of Wales uh, gave bonds bonds there were two bonds in particular uh, to uh, to uh, to Mr. North Mr. Fourth sorry yes but then, as he was broke, he, he, he didn't um, stay true to his words. Afterwards, he wouldn't pay. Yes. But what, ca what could that guy do? Because he was in front of him, he had the, the British government and the parliament. So, he, so, so Forth, who was a spy, who got some annuities from, the, uh, from special, uh, as a special envoy from France, and also as a spy for me, he had plenty of money. He was a spy for the for the British as well. But he was he was taken in. He was he was a mediator, and he was funneling funds for the Prince of Wales with the connection of the Duke of Orleans. But himself, although he made a fortune, he lost as well because the the Prince of Wales would not be true to his words. <laughs> Incredible! Would can you imagine that? But I the can't. thing, is, the difference here is that uh, for the money to be given, you have to have the approval of the parliament in England. So it was more difficult to get monies for uh, uh, special operations abroad than maybe in France at the time. Special so operations, yes, that's a very kind yeah. term. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Indeed, this is the birth of the spy. I mean, uh, yes. these, yes. these poor King Louis the Sixteenth was he was. He was riding, he was holding the tiger by its tail. These forces, although we talk about, and Beaumarchais, um, uh, who, is, who wrote The Marriage of Figaro. We must talk about that at some point, how a play can rot away a society. Um, yes, but, does, yes. yes, but I mean, the forces, spies, and also the invention of credit, which, which I shall talk about in another, in another podcast, which is a terrifying tool, ladies and gentlemen. It's not just for your credit cards. It's a tool to hurt people. It's... All these is, forces yeah. were coming together. Yes, I agree with you. Okay, and uh, can we go a little bit deeper about the Freemason uh, connection? Because we it's very to, important. We've already touched upon it a little bit. Now, in within the uh, the organization of the Freemasons, the Duke of Orleans managed to become the Grand Master of the Orient branch. Okay, yes. or lodge. Now, some people say that he managed to get that position because he bribed everybody, which is quite possible, but also being a very important member of the royal family. It was an honor for the, for the lodge to have him as president, I guess, uh, as a main, as grand master. But you have to remember this, that the grand master played a very important uh, hidden role in France because through the secret societies, he was able to command such a huge 
amount of people, you see. So for him, it was a very interesting position to have because then he, he would be able to chant, to convey his message uh, to uh, all the lodges in France. And if we think about la grande peur, the great fear, which, uh, which really uh, took hold of the population before the, uh, at a, a certain moment before the storming of La Bastille, yes. people were afraid because they thought this w there was a conspiracy going on here. And it was very easy for him to kindle or to, uh, to, uh, to uh, manipulate, to organize this, yes. you see. Yes. And, and so as, uh, from that position, he was able uh, to really command things very well to his own advantage. In the intelligence community, oh, sorry, in the intelligence community today, I believe they call it compartmentalization. That's where you run a secret society and the cells do not know what the other is doing. Only the person in charge. Well, during the French resistance uh, years, uh, during the last uh, World War, yes, uh, France, we had that they compartmentalized the section. They did that, which is a, a a very interesting point because if you do that, then you try to save the organization. If they can, if they are all connected, it's very easy to go to for the uh, intelligence service to know exactly what goes on in all the sections. Yes. Whereas if it's compartmentalized, then it's more difficult to to really erase the whole system. So yes. But but the point is, I think that as a grand master, he played a very important role as well. This guy. And what I would like to touch upon here is the, from what I've read, because I'm not a mason. You may. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I should that hope I've not. Never be, I've never been actually. I've never been approached myself. But I've got friends who've been approached, but of course. The good thing I've not been approached because I wouldn't like to be approached. Exactly. It speaks, uh, speaks well of you. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't stand that. But anyway, uh, so the, what is interesting here is that any society, any society, this is something I've found, and I've read it as well, but I think it's very true. Any society needs to have its own founding myths and rights. Founding myths, what you are... You know, uh, any society will have myths on which to thrive and also some rights, you know? Yes, and, and all of those are just inversions of legitimacy in Christianity. They're perversions. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting to consider the rights for the Freemasons and particularly to become the Grand Master. Mm. They call themselves uh, Knights, the Kadosh Knight. Kadosh, K-A-D-O-S-H. This is the highest grade uh, at the time to be a Grand Master in that one of these lodge, lodges, okay? Yes. And it's interesting to consider the rites which were performed to become the Grand Master. You know the ceremonies, are, we haven't, we are not Freemasons, we do not know what goes on in these lodges, but we've uh, probably seen, most of us have heard uh, or seen on YouTube or on other channels or uh, on media, we've seen that, you know, the, the guy comes and he's, uh, he's with, his gag, uh, with his eyes uh, bandaged and uh, yes. he walks on and there's a, there's a ceremony and he has plenty of things to perform and he will do it, etc. This isn't very well known, so I would not talk too much about that. But there's a very special part here which is interesting, is that to become the Grand Master, you had to perform other rites other rights, and uh, you would be uh, walking in a cavern, 
to see and uh, where there would be bones uh, and then you would have to perform a number of things you see and uh, if you were to do you had to do that and you had to say things as well uh, to show that you were really um, believing in these rights uh, failure of which you wouldn't become the grandmaster and uh, so here blasphemous uh, things blasphemous, blasphemous things you would have to say awful awful things oh yes yes and so there are there are various uh, narrations on that particular episode in one of them apparently the, the in that case the duke of orleans had to perform a certain rite he was given um, a poignard that's a, a knife okay a knife and uh, he was uh, he had to come close to uh, an animal now that animal uh, had his belly um sheared you know what i mean you know yes he had to cut the, the, the all the hairs and he, with his hand he had to touch the animal and uh, and he could so that he could feel the heart of the animal oh deeper, okay Yes. And then afterwards, with his knife, he was supposed to cut, uh, to, to, to throw his knife into the heart of this animal, you see. So, and then afterwards, he had to collect, uh, he, afterwards, they would remove the bandage from his eyes, and he would have to collect the blood and throw the blood. And it was, uh, in a sense, that was symbolical. It was the symbol for them of the assassination of the main Knights Templar, Jacques de Molay. Uh, you, I'm sure you've heard about that guy. Yes, I, I know quite a deal about the Knights Templar. I don't know much about the Masonic version of it. Well, for some people, the Masons Lodge all derive from the Knights Templars, you see, and with Jacques de Molay, yes. who happened to be the main uh, chief of that uh, particular uh, Templars uh, of that movement, Jacques de Molay was an extremely powerful man, and uh, under Philippe Le Philippe Le Bel, Philippe the the Fine, I don't know what you say in English for that, Philippe the the, the King, he, he was he was uh, the fair maybe, yeah, the fair is like uh, fair looking. He was he was uh, he was put to death, you see, because uh, he was uh, he was extremely rich, and uh, he got he he, he, had, he had to be. I there was there was a um, there was a, um, this inquisition was the inquisition process that I think yes. if yes. I may sir I, we must at least I, or I'll just take a moment here and discuss it yes. um, the Knights Templar were originally the Knights of the Templar that was the name they got originally they were the poor brothers of the Christ I believe they were they were knights during the medieval ages who were sort of like monks in that they took vows and they were usually from noble families and they went off to the Holy Land to fight in the Crusades. Somewhere along the way, they became extremely rich and sort of the proto-bankers of Europe because as Crusaders would go and fight, they'd drop their money off with the Templars. Eventually, in the medieval ages, they came to the attention of the church's inquisition because there were rumors coming out that in these strange Templar chapels, there were ceremonies being held to Baphomet i.e. the devil, and the church, yes, right. supported as it always had been by the French monarchy, no way to say it, liquidated the Knights Templar. They, did, they cut it out and destroyed it. And the, the, so the story goes, some of these Templar Knights survived and became the genesis of Freemasonry, 
Um, so I don't quite know, it, and this is where Friday the 13th come from, the, the legend at least, because they were liquidated on Friday the 13th. had to stab the yeah the poor animal yes. then afterwards once uh once the actually some some people say it's an animal a live animal some others yes. others say it's a mannequin so i do not know exactly what happened but the main point here is the symbolic aspect of it in the sense that he's going to kill uh, that animal and he, this animal is supposed to represent philip the fair who has killed Jacques de Molay. So you see, this is uh, some form of vengeance on the part of the Freemasons and, in, in, and, and to, become, to become the Grand Master, he had to perform that particular ceremony where he's going to kill that animal and then he's going to wash his hands with the blood and that represents, you know, the, uh, afterwards the vengeance on the part of the the, the Masons who are going to always thinking that what they are going to do is to overthrow the king as a vengeance for Jacques de Molay, who had been assassinated, so to speak. Huh? So, yes. And the, the actual uh, sentences which were pronounced by the, the, um, this, uh, the, the, the prince are quite telling. And I can tell you, because I've written down a few sentences here, of the things he had to say. All men are equals. That was the first thing he had to say. Then no one can be higher than anyone else. You see? Mm -hmm. Then monarchs must belong to the multitude. Monarchs must belong to the multitude. Peoples give sovereignty as they wish and likewise take it back when they want. Now listen. Any religion presented as the uh, mark of God is an absurdity. Any power pretending to be spiritual is an indecent fact, an abuse. Okay, so he had he had to say all these sentences, and the idea here is to debase monarchy. Yes. So once he had pronounced all these statements, he, he became the grand master, and if he had that in mind it's easy to understand why the, the way he behaved afterwards because he had to be true to his words and the freemasons were, were uh, under his leadership but at some point uh, the, the freemasons left him and by the end of his life before he was guillotined 
he decided to renounce uh, the Freemasonry, which is very interesting, you see, because he had understood that he had been taken in by them, you see. He was a tortured, sick man, and I want to, for audience, this brings me to a very personal place, Monsieur, because everyone often asks me, well, you're not French. Now, I'm not French. Um, why, why do you support this legitimist movement? And this, you've just, you've, you've hit the nail on the head, as they say. We, it's, so they say, yes, you're a Mason, et cetera, et cetera, you believe in democracy. So people are equal, mm-hmm, all right, that, I can understand that. The second point, and then immediately after, religions are absurd. It's, it immediately attacks Christianity. Immediately. Oh, all right. And, all right. Yes. And as as and this is precisely what happens here in the sense in the statements I've read. You see? It's it's so true. And as as a Christian man, as a man who believes in the right order of things, I am obliged to be a legitimist because even though the revolutionaries have not come for me today, they will come tomorrow. They will come for each of us, and they will do everything they can. It is unavoidable. So this is why we must support the legitimist movement, in my opinion. It's a matter of survival, sir. It's a matter of survival, I agree with you. But of course, the idea here also is to convey a number of ideas so that people can reflect and think about yes. this. Because it takes time to become a legitimist. Unless you're born in the right uh, milieu, myself, it's a conversion in a sense. Yes. First, a Catholic conversion, and then a royalist conversion, you see. So it took years, but of course, this is precisely why, why I'm interested in that type of uh, podcast, because we can bring the, the word to people who are not aware of it. And if they are, well, if they are careful and if they listen, they can uh, at least think about it. And uh, maybe sometime later, they will accept uh, our proposals. Quoting Dr. Martin Luther King, because as you know, sir, we don't believe in the right or the left. We dismiss both of those as a fallacy. We believe in the human being and the dignity of the human being as revealed by the church. And I want to point out to our, to our followers here, to our supporters, yes, it's a difficult struggle we face even audibilizing these truths. But that's what the legitimist movement has done through obstacles that no other similar movement has faced in history. It's gotten, and I'd say we're starting to walk again, sir. I'd say the crawling is over, thank God. And maybe, who knows, one day we can fly. I think we've covered many things already. Uh, there were two uh, points which I, think, which I think deserve all our attention, which I haven't had the time to cover. Mm. First, the, the infamous episode of the 5 and the 6th of October, when the king, uh, 1789, when the king and the queen are forced to go back to Paris. This is an episode where the duke played a very important role and then finally, something which I think I must say today, because it's very, very important to try and have a, a fairly comprehensive view of this character. Yes. He was certainly instrumental in the great famine which uh, uh, took hold of France. Uh, and at the time, you see, there, there had been some hailstorms. So there had been some problems with the grain uh, harvests. Yes. And as he was a gambler, and as, as he was extremely rich, and as he had all the right connections, he decided to set up a certain system where he would be able, through an agent, to buy all the grains available in France at, 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 and before they were sold to the public. Now, that was possible because there were the free trade agreements with England. You see? Yes. 
which have been addicted or which have been promulgated by Lomélie de Brienne. So anyway, the, the, this, this episode is extremely important because in a nutshell, the Duke decided to collect all the grains available and, have, and had it shipped to England. Actually, it was not shipped to England really, it was shipped to Guernsey, which is an island in yeah. the, you know, okay, on the English channel island. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, okay. So the, all the grain was stored outside France. And it was uh, didn't go well with the population because the population was starting to starve, you see. But the idea was really to starve the population so that people afterwards uh, would re rebel. And by rebelling, they would overthrow the government. And that's what it So you can see how, d how evil this, this, uh, this, this, this plot is, really, to starve the populations just because you want to get the throne. It's, a, it's a, so... It's uh, indescribable. It is, it is yeah. unimaginable. It, and this is unimaginable. Yeah. yeah. This is this is these these the descendants of these people are our leaders today. Our world was born of a conspiracy to take power for yourself by hurting the poor people. And these are the people who tell us we're democracy, liberty, equality, fraternity. Yeah. According to our friend Madame Campan, who we quoted earlier. The Duke himself was dressed in a great cloak, going through Versailles and encouraging the rioters in person. Um, indeed, indeed. Yes. Only scholars will know about it, and it will be restricted to a fairly small circle of uh, intellectuals. But the major, the, the population doesn't know about this. But of course, just like the, if you consider, for example, le, le 14 juillet, the 14th of July. Yes. which is the, Fre the national French uh, oh, um, yeah. day. In fact, it's not the it's, it doesn't mean the storming of the Bastille. It's la fête de la fédération. You see, people get mixed up about it, you know, but, but of course the authorities will know. The other day, I heard somebody, uh, there was the one, the, there's one uh, French uh, member of parliament who's a bit of um, a rascal as well. Just mm. like... Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm not giving any details, but obviously yes. he comes from Brittany and uh, he's been elected, but in fact, um, he, well, he had some shady dealings, you know, oh. and is 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 what we call la maison secondaire, you know, the, which is the uh, private uh, secondary house, okay, oh, yeah. that's, uh, uh, was, was burnt more or less, <coughs> and of course all the MPs are in a rage, how can that possibly be, you know? But that guy was is, is a shady guy as well, you know? So oh. I'm not surprised. And there was one, uh, one MP who said on the, on, on the radio, and I, I, I thought that was very interesting, but you see, people took it uh, as he said it, and they didn't think about it, but he said, oh, that they should burn his house. Actually, the, the house was not burnt. It was yes. only a little piece which was burned. It's really anti-Republican. And I thought this is great to say that. It's so untrue. Because if you think about it precisely, during the Vendée, they would burn all the houses down. And that was the republic against the monarchy. This is exactly what they were doing. This is, this is like the Reichstag fire. They, they, yes. Yeah, yes. It's like that. It's, yeah. it's yeah. incredible, is it not? That these people, it shows that people today have no idea about their past. 
they forgot the that when we say the values of the republic, which is something that everybody is talking it's, about now, it's an oxymoron. The values, absolutely, but yeah. in fact, the values of the republic are disgusting. They are honestly very disgusting. And the truth. And and when that guy said, "Oh, c'est anti-républicain," <laughs> stupid idiot to say that. It's precisely Republican to do that. You see, it, it is forgotten about the real the real nature of the republic. Like if we if you talking about liberty, equality, fraternity, what a stupid thing to say. Honestly, there's it's no liberty, there's no equality. And the brotherhood is only for the brothers in the same lodge. The that's Freemasons, yes, who are running the whole sick operation. It's yeah, that's what it was all, all about at the start, you see? It's wicked. So, it's wicked is what it is. It really, in every sense of the word. But of yes. course, you see, but you see that's, uh, as you probably have heard or read, if you say a lie long enough, people will think it's true. I think it's Goebbels who said that, and I think it's very true. Yes. If you prefer a lie long enough, people will believe it's the truth. And it's a profound lie, because ever since the a Republic was uh, created, it was based on a bloodshed, as I've told you many times, and I do believe that. I think we've given everyone a lot to think about. Certainly you've given me a lot. To, and we shall respond to it next time when we continue. This is the revolution, folks. You wanted to know about the French Revolution. This is it, unabridged. And for the first time ever, you're getting the truth in the English language. Thank you for your time. God bless you, and I shall look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you.